I ask you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to read some, uh, we're going to read a passage today. I'm not sure if I've ever heard anyone ever preach on this text before, and, um, and it's a wild and strange text, and I'm going to take a shot at it. And it's, I think it's very relevant um, for our times and how we look at the church. And it's about leadership in the church, the way God intended it to be, His will in it. And so, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just give you a little bit of background. This is the culmination of an argument that Paul is making because he's upset. He's upset at the church in Corinth for the way they divide how different guys favor certain pastors over others. I'm, I like Paul. I like Cephas. I'm of Apollos. Apollos was actually a very gifted teacher. And so some would divide along these ways and Paul is rather upset at the church, and this is what he says to him, to them. And then as we move into chapter 4, this is how he talks about the leadership. This is how he talks about the way God has set forward the leadership that the first pastors that he called, that, that we call the apostles. So let's give you a little bit of background as I read into this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18, verses 4, 3. And then you know, he kind of goes into a bit of a sidebar, so then I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 8. And the, from there, those are the verses I especially want us to um, chew on today. Um, chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. That's how Paul talks. If you think you're so smart, you should learn to become dumb. If you think you are wise, let him become a fool so that you could really become wise. Verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So then he shifts. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. That one verse deserves its own sermon, but we're going to move on, all right? Verse 8. Let me go to verse 8. Already you have all, all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
we have become and still are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the way God, Paul describes the first pastors. We're like the refuse of the world. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul can be the refuse of the world. And then he sends other guys so that they could be the refuse of the world, which are his ways everywhere in every church. Let me pray for today's message and talk about this wild and radical thing. Lord, we look at the church, and we so often look at the church through, through worldly eyes, through eyes of flesh and not of the Spirit. We pray now that your Spirit would be here, and we would become fools, so we could be wise in Christ, and you would give us eyes to see the church and to see its leadership and why it is kind of the way it is, and that far from being frustrated in fact we would move past being frustrated far from being so prideful and taking sides that we would look at all those men and women who would raise their hands and say I want to be a fool in Christ so that others can be wise in Christ that you would make us a church like this that we would dare be the refuse of the world so that people would have eternal life in Jesus Bless this message, Lord. I'm going to do my best. You take these stumbling lips and um, speak through the foolishness of me and blaze through the foolishness of God, which is greater than the wisdom of man. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I'm going to talk about something. I'm going to talk about an issue. How to look at church leaders. To look at the church and its leaders, how the Bible presents it. That's really the, the subject that matter I'm going to talk about. And let me put a little bit more, let me tweak this a little bit more, to put this rather very bluntly. Why I'm, I'm going to ask and try to answer this question that maybe some of you have actually asked. Maybe that you weren't quite so rude to ask it out loud. I'm going to ask it out loud to give you permission to actually chew on this question. And that is, why does the church leaders, they don't look like very much? To put it very, very bluntly, how come so many church leaders look like losers? How come the church doesn't look like much and it's led by losers? Why is that the case? Right? That's, that's what I'm going to attempt. The Bible actually addresses this in today's passage. And I want to talk about that today. And I'm going to say it in three acts, as I usually do. Act one, worldly wisdom and its judgment on leadership. Worldly wisdom and the way we judge leadership. Part two, I'm going to talk about what I call the foolish core of the church. The foolish core of the church. And part three, I'm going to talk about the original and greatest fool of all. The original and greatest fool of all. 
Um, part one, um, just first, just to start in the, in the subject, do you know that our, our society, our culture is obsessed with leaders and leadership? You know that? Everywhere you turn, leaders and leadership get so much attention. Uh, you may you just walk down to Barnes and Nobles, and you, you go down to the business section, and there's so many books about leaders being a great leader, how to inspire people, uh, how, how we need great leaders. This is also one of the reasons why the news cycle is obsessed with the president. You know that. <laughs> Everything the president does, even if it's stupid things that don't really matter, gets attention. The president will call up the NCAA basketball championship team and have them over to the White House. And do you know that some bozos from the media will show up with their cameras and there'll be a story about this and it'll be on CNN or it'll be on Fox News. It'll be on. It'll, and there has to be this thing. The president will have to shake the hand of some 20-year-old punk who's really good at dribbling a basketball and say, congratulations, young man, we're proud of you. You're the champion. And that gets on TV because we are obsessed with leadership. Okay. Um, many of you guys football fans? Any of you guys football fans? I know a number of you guys are football fans. If you watch any just typical average NFL game, you know where the camera goes all the time? The camera is constantly on the quarterback. The quarterback is the guy on the field. Everything goes through him, and he is the leader. And there's all these stories, and all there's so many articles that are obsessed about the quarterback. But in any typical football game, the camera's on him all the time. It's so wild. It's even on him when he's sitting on the sidelines and not even in the game. His helmet is off, and he's looking at the plays, and the camera's on him. Look how brilliant he is. He is planning the next moves. He is analyzing the defenses. The guy could be picking his nose, and I bet you there's a camera on him. In fact, I bet there is a camera on him. The director probably says, hey, you, your job is to stick the camera on this quarterback. Your job is to stick the camera on this quarterback. If he's picking the nose on the sidelines, I want that shot. And then what happens is anytime it looks even remotely interesting, the director will pan to him. You know what other shots that you see in a football game? The camera is constantly on the coach. He's the, he may be this fat guy wearing a sweatshirt. He has a clipboard in his hand, and he, maybe he has headphones. And something happens in the game. Maybe it's something good or something bad. But the camera pans to him, so, what, so you know what you can see? So you can see his facial reaction. <laughs> you can see him get angry. You can see him get upset. You can see him. And when he goes like this, oh, he's being a leader. Um, so many of our movies about leaders. The, the movie that, I, that comes to my mind when I think about leadership is Braveheart. <laughs> okay, that, of, of all the, the, the movie screen leaders that I find the most compelling, the one that I think, well, I think about is William Wallace. Because William Wallace can stand up on, on a horse and stand with a bunch of men and say, hey, we're going to go into battle and you'll probably die but would you rather go home and you can live, but all the days that you have after today, would you trade all those days for a chance to run into battle with me today and die <laughs> with me now? And I remember watching that 
speech that he gives, and I listened to him, and I said, man, I want to go die and kill English dudes right now. (laughs) I want to go kill English dudes now and get killed so I can die with with Mel Gibson, all right? And that's, that's a leader. Man, that's a leader. And that's what we think about when we think of a leader. He's strong. He's courageous. He knows what's up. He's smart. He has the right training. He has the right competence. That's the word that I think about. And he goes, oh, like this. And then, and then he inspires, and, and you want to follow. I mean, it could be a she. She inspires, and we want to follow, right? But that's leaders. But uh, let, let me take you right here into this passage. One of the things that this passage is saying is so radical. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to even know what to make of it. This is the way we, we assess leaders. We look into the world. The guy on this, he's smart. Bill Belichick, that guy knows what's... The reason, and this is what we always say. If the team wins, we always say it's because Belichick was brilliant. He had a great game plan. The reason why the, the Scottish were able to sustain against the Irish is because William Wallace, I mean, that guy was great. That's why. And this is, we love this story. But here's what he says. Let no one deceive himself. If any one of you thinks he is wise in this, let him become a fool. And you know what he's getting at? He's saying the way you look at leaders is dumb in the church. That's what he's saying. You guys... You're in this church of Corinth, and you, you, you side with this guy versus that guy, and, you, and, and then the church is splitting up because you think this guy is so smart. I mean, the, the fact is, later on in the Bible, there's this guy named Apollos, and they acknowledge that he was a brilliant teacher. I, I even imagine if there's lots of people who listen to Apollos, and they probably said, hey, hey Paul, he's, better, he's a better preacher than you. He's a better pastor than you. Heck, he's straight up better looking than you. I like him better. And... He's saying, if this is the way you assess it when you come into the church, you're dumb. You don't get it at all. You're coming in with the wisdom of the world. But it says, Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. So let no one boast in men. That's what he's saying. (laughs) It's actually God's plan that he picks leaders that don't seem very smart that don't seem very tough, that don't have all of, the, all of the things that we say of the competence, so that you just go, that guy's a leader. And that's a really hard pill to swallow. Um, over, over the years, um, my wife and I, you know, we've moved here and there, and um, we've gone to churches where I'm not being the pastor. And you, you visit a church, and what is the very, one of the first things that you decide to do? You decide, you decide, is that guy up front, is he an idiot? <laughs> Does that guy know what he's doing? And we all do this. And it's, this is a bit, I feel a little self-conscious giving this message to you because I know that a number of you come to this church, and it, it's not the only reason why you come to this church, but one of the reasons why you chose this church is because you t- assessed me and decided, hey, that guy, Susang, he's not an idiot, Okay? He, he must know something. He actually seems like a, a credible leader to me. I've, I'm going to let that guy be my leader. I'm going to let that guy teach me. I'm going to let that guy tell me how to live and not to live, and, and um, I'm going to receive it, okay? At least I'm going to try to receive it. And that's why some of you decided this thing. 
But right here in this passage, that's, he's, he's rebuking that. It's really astounding, isn't it? And I know you, some of you, some of you guys are, 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 are smart people that went and had all these good educations. And quite frankly, that's part of the reason why you choose this church. Because the guy up front's a nerd. <laughs> the guy up front is overeducated and has too many degrees in it. And, and you probably would like it if you show up in my office and there's books hanging all over the place because that's what my office is. My office is a mess and there's books all over the place. And you're probably like, good, nerdy pastor. That's what I want. I want a smart pastor. Right? But actually, this, this, one of the first things this, this, uh, this, this passage is saying is, you don't get it. Wow. This church, this church of Corinth, Corinth was one of the global cities of its time. It was a New York or a London or a Silicon Valley of its time. The smart people would flow through the city, and this letter starts off with a rebuke to the, those people who think they're so wise and they think they're so smart. And, and right here, all these sophisticated people that have joined the church, but just I want you to just think a little bit, tr- just try to imagine what this church must have been like. It's a global city. The church, I don't know what that city had. Maybe it had a couple hundred thousand people. And ba- back then, that would be like having 10 million people in the city today, or at least two or three million. They may have had a couple hundred thousand people in the city today. And how many Christians were in their city? Maybe this is, the, this is probably the only church in the city. <laughs> this is the only church in the city, and maybe they have a hundred people. In the, and a chunk of the people in the church they're poor, and they're badly educated. And let me show you something else. Paul was Jewish, and, but Paul was called to be a pastor and a missionary to those who, are, who were Greeks, or at least who were the Greco-Romans of the time. And especially, so he goes into this elite city with elite, well-educated, some rich, some very successful Greco-Romans, and you know how they thought? If it can just, I'm just trying to get you to imagine this. There's Joe Greek dude who would in, invite, you know, John, his, his Syrian business partner to church. Hey, I hear, and that's my pastor. His name is Paul. Wait, he's Jewish. You know what that would have immediately done? It would have immediately been despised. Because all the Romans, they, you know what they looked at the Jews as? They looked at the Jews as those disgusting, stupid people who think that they have one true God. The rest of us, we bow down to, of, of hundreds of different gods. But these stupid people, they looked at them as, as primitive. They looked at them as, as backwards. And they have never really imbibed any of this great, sophisticated philosophy and civilization that we have in the Greek and Greco-Roman world. These Jews, they're so stupid and backwards. And you're telling me your pastor is a Jew? Are you kidding? And then if that wasn't bad enough, Paul would go and stand before these Greco-Romans, and they would look at him and they would despise him. They would revile him, as he says. But then among his own, there may be some Jews. There's probably a handful of Jews in there. And when the Jews would talk to their Jewish brothers and sisters and say, hey, why don't you come to this thing that we call the church and hear about God, they would go, wait a second, that's Paul. He's teaching this Christianity stuff. You know that the Jews hated Paul. 
for preaching the gospel. To this day, the Jews are some of the most resistant, even today, they're some of the most resistant people to the gospel. They were back then too. And Paul, he was stoned. And you know who stoned him? Jews stoned him. So the Romans would stick him in prison and the Jews would throw rocks at him. This is the first pastors of the church. Right? This is what they were like. And he, would, and he stands up and he's saying, when you show up at the church, you're looking at a bunch of dumpy guys. And the world looks at us and says they're idiots. But this was God's will. This is what he's saying. He's saying, God, you show up with your wisdom. You're looking for your William Wallace and your Bill Belichick and your Peyton Mannings on the field. But actually, you don't get anything like that. You get Paul. And today, you know, Paul is like a legend to the Christians. You're like, he is a stud and a half. But I don't think we would have seen that if you were in that Corinth church. You would have said, he looks, he's a loser. But this is normal to God. And I want you to just think about this. This isn't just something he did in the early church. All around the world, what do you think the churches look like? I think one of the reasons why our church has become post-Christian is there's something missing in the church. We want the church to look with fancy buildings and respectable, but do you know that some of the most beautiful church buildings around the world, they're not serving as churches? You can go to Europe and the most glorious church buildings in the world, you know what they are? They're they're museums. (laughs) They're tourist traps where they're selling all this garbage, kitschy bunch of junk Right? And people do not worship God there, but they got lots of great art in this building. But God has left the building. You know that? And we here in America, we're in this place that we call, it's called increasingly post Christian because there was a time when the church was very respected and powerful in our society, but now we don't know how to operate since the church is not in the seat of power and influence anymore. The church is once again being despised. But when did the church have its deepest power? When God said, I will show up. This is where I I seek to live. That's my house. This church, as I preached to you last week, was the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's God's house. It's the place where the leaders look dumpy. This is what, God is glad to be this way. And that's the first point I want you to see. We show up with like pictures of wisdom. But all around the world today, right now, what do you think the church looks like in Thailand? In a society that's dominant Buddhist, everyone goes around saying they're Buddhists. Or if you were to go into, say, Morocco or into Saudi Arabia, where everyone is supposed to be a Muslim, I don't even know if they deeply love Allah, but everybody, if you're going to be a respectable, decent person in that society, you're supposed to be a Muslim. And then there's these weird little set of people out here the guy leading the church, the guy leading the church might be a plumber. The guy leading the church, he never went to seminary. He may have a sixth grade education and barely be able to read the Bible. And he has to hold down, he has his day job, he has to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week just to make ends meet. And then, and then on Saturday, he, he gets into his Bible, which he, probably, he may not understand very well, and then he has to lead the church. And then if those guys and 10 or 20 people, there's 20 or 20 Christians in this city, and then they are going to invite somebody into their church, 
and their pastor is a plumber. That's the church. That's the church around the world right now. That's the church way it was back then. That's the church now. And let me tell you something. What this passage is saying is God likes it that way. It, it, wasn't, this is, it wasn't like, oh man, they're dumpy and they're losers and hope one day they'll grow up to really be a real church. God is saying, that is the real church. That's my house. That's how I like it. That's a crazy thing to say. But that's what I'm telling you. Let me go to part two of my message. The foolish core of the church. Let me take you to the, this, these verse. Let me take you to these verses. Verse nine of chapter four. This is how he puts it. I think that God has exhibited us apostles, the first pastors, the first leaders of the church. How does he put it? And notice how he piles up the adjectives as last of all. Men sentenced to death. We are spectacles to the world. We're not only just spectacles, we're spectacles to angels. Even the angels look at us and go, oh man. You know what he means, that word spectacle? A spectacle in, in the Greek times would be, this is would be a spectacle. We go to the Colosseum and they let out the lions and they rip those guys apart. These are the guys that show up and they kill each other. They're the gladiators and they kill each other. That's a spectacle. This is how he's describing the leaders of the church. We're a spectacle to the world. He goes on. We are fools for Christ's sake. You become wise. You get to be held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Let me tell you a story. Um, there's another church, there's, another, uh, there's a, a large, the large, one of the largest Korean churches in San Jose is called Emmanuel. And my father is, is a, he's a retired elder in that church. So I know something about the history of that church. And um, that church now has, I think, some like 1,500 adults. Okay, it's a, it's a very large church. They have a really nice you know, shiny building, and they, and, you know, they, and they do really well, so to speak, you know, in, in all the ways that we would normally say they do well in, on worldly terms. But there was a time when that church was really tiny and hurting and didn't look like much. And you would have showed up at the ch- uh, church and looked, you would have looked at the elders. One of them was with my dad. <laughs> and uh, you looked at the pastor, and he would have looked like a loser to you. And my dad once told me the story. They would have these dawn, you know, these early sunset, you know, these sunrise prayer services at that church. And my dad would go. And my dad played piano. And so he would often sit up front because they would ask him, Elder Park, you know, you play piano. There's only like 10 people here in this room. Back then, the church had probably maybe 100 people, 100 adults. And on any given day in the middle of the week, 10 people would show up for that dawn person, maybe less, maybe five. So people would wake up, it'd be dark at 5.30 a.m. to go to church to go pray. And my dad would sit up front, and the pastors, you know, would you, you know, clang out a few hymns, and they'd sing a couple hymns. So my dad would sit up there, and a couple chairs down, the pastor would sit up there. So he would go and 
play the hymns, and then he'd sit down, and then the pastor would come, and it's his turn to preach. And one day, while my, my dad had come back, sat down, while the pastor was preaching, he looked down, my, well, my, my dad looked at the pastor's jacket, and it was in the middle of winter. And so it was cold. I mean, you know, it's not that cold here in Northern California, but you still need a jacket. And my dad looked at the pastor's jacket, and it was ratty. It was old. It was beaten up, and it had holes. And my dad realized, oh, my pastor. And my dad's one of the elders, so he knows what the church pays the pastor, and he knows it's not much because they can't pay much because the church doesn't, just doesn't have that much money. And my dad came home that day, and he turned to my mom, and he said, um, next time you go to the store, let's buy the pastor a new jacket. And in fact, why don't we just buy some more clothes for all the kids. You notice that the kids, you know, when my dad, you know, next Sunday he looked at the kids and he noticed that they often wore the same clothes again and again. And so he told my mom, let's go buy some clothes for the pastors and his kids. And so they did. And then my mom noticed that they wore those clothes a lot. <laughs> right? That's the church. And I'm not telling this to you I'm not trying to get anything out of you. Please don't get this sermon wrong. I'm not trying to get you to raise my pay or do anything for you. Don't do anything for me, okay, please. Just love me, okay? Okay, I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I'm just trying to tell you this. This is the church. And um, I've been a pastor for quite a while. I got ordained in 1998. That's 15 years. So I know you're looking at me like, you know, Pastor Susan, you're like a young handsome, stud-looking dude, okay? But I'm an old and creaky kind of guy. I've been a pastor for a while. Um, when I first came back to this church, um, I had this one conversation with the, the pastor at the time, this Pastor Lee. We were talking about, we were talking about the reality. I don't know if you know this. All around the country, Pastors are quitting the ministry. You know that? All around the country. I'm, I'm not talking about the Korean church. Every church. Across the race and ethnicities. Our society, as we're becoming post-Christian, there is a pressure it's on what the church is supposed to be like. And what do we do? It's got to have the programs. It's got to have the buildings. And the leaders are supposed to be William Wallace. Peyton Manning. <laughs> and... And when I was a young man, I used to say, why is he like that? Why is this pastor see so dumb? How come the elders at this church are just totally dropping the ball? The deacons at this church, come on, can't they see? Can't they see what's going on here? And it used to frustrate me to no end. And um, one of the things I said to Pastor Lee was, one of the things I'm really grateful for, Moksanin, Pastor Lee, is I'm still in it. Because just a few years prior to me coming back to the church, but I would say about five years prior to that, I, I wanted to quit. I was actually very seriously thinking about leaving ministry. I was looking for some alternative, alternative career track. Why? Because I realized as a pastor, this is exactly what he said here, we are poorly dressed. And I looked at my kids, because I was a dad, and I was looking at my kids and all my kids we, we, my kids they were really little at the time you know how they dressed 
they had actually had some nice clothes because they had hand-me-downs from other church folks. And, uh, and thankfully, some of those church, church folks had good taste. You know, they're like, my kid had like a polo shirt. <laughs> and we'd walk outside thinking like, wow, this is brand new. The people who gave us this shirt literally never wore it on their kid. And then they were nice enough to hand it to us. But it bothered me that as a dad, this is the way we dressed our kids. It bothered me greatly. And I was like, this sucks. I hate this. Right? And I wanted to leave. Because I wanted a, a steady paycheck. I did not want a fear of being homeless, not being able to make rent. And we were dropping into debt right around that time. That was a very real and serious question. Maybe we'll go homeless. And, but the Lord called. And a few years later, I'm talking to Pastor Lee saying, I'm still in it. Let me say something to you about the church. This is the church. And the church is like this. Because at the center of the church, what we have to offer to you is something so crazy, it's hard for people to get their heads wrapped around. Lots of people come to the church, and what they want is, Pastor, please give me three tips on how to be a better husband because my, my marriage sucks. Pastor, give me a, a few clues on how to get my kids to obey me because one of them wants to do dope or just goes into his room or doesn't even talk to me. And, and, or my finances are out of control. Come on. Just something to make my life work. And we could, we could do that. And, and the Bible has some of those things. We could give you some of those tips. But quite frankly, that's not what you really need from church. That's not the deepest thing that you need. The, there's all these churches out there today, and we even call it that. The church is its own religious market. And the church is market-segmented. <laughs> White upper-class folks go to the white upper-class church where they got the smart white upper-class pastor who has all of the proper vocabulary, okay? And the black lower-class church folks go to the market-segmented black lower-class church where they got the right kind of music and the guy who can love me properly because he understands where I'm coming from. This is the way, this is America, but actually, you show up at church thinking you know what you, what you want out of church, but actually more than what you think you want, you know what you need? What you need is the grace of Jesus. And grace is a profoundly, to its bottom, bottom core, it's something that you and I cannot quite get our heads wrapped around. Because this is what grace is. You show up and you can totally completely suck I mean right down to the bottom bottom you can literally come naked and disgusting and poor and of course I know that you don't actually do that you, you, thankfully you, you come dressed <laughs> and most of you I think shower <laughs> but in your soul that's the way you are that's the way we all are we are disgusting and wretched. And we have a heart made of stone and, um, and a head full of rocks. 
and we come to church, and somehow we're supposed to be able to get God, <laughs> get God out of this thing called the church. So how does God do it? He does it by grace. And the way he expressed that grace was through a death on a cross. And so, if the guy up front is going to, he's going to be William Wallace, and he's going to be Bill Belichick, and Peyton Manning, and he's just got it all together, how does that actually convey grace? Doesn't that actually then show you how great that guy is? Isn't that really what it's about? See, I'm actually rather, I know that many of you come to the church, part of the reason you chose this church is because I, or maybe, and some of our other leaders are, 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 are actually convincing to you. But actually, that's not what God's interested in the church. He actually wants you to show up in the church and see the weakness of leaders. He actually show up and say, the leaders aren't much. Because God is much. That's, that's the church. Isn't that incredible? So it's a really strange thing. And I stand before you, and I want you to see the full totality of my humanity. If you come to the church because I like that Pastor Susan has all these degrees, he's this overeducated guy with too many books, you actually don't get it. You don't really get it. What you really need is the God that I proclaim. And you'll actually see this God better when you can see that I'm not much. That John isn't much. That Doke isn't much. And what the church is here to do, the Lord shows up and goes, this is my house. These are my bricks. Don't they, they look pretty not much, right? And he's going to call forward, hey, some of you, the pay will suck. You know, many of you guys, so many of you, you show up at church. I'm not even just talking about the pastors. Some of you show up. You pour forth your hours and your time. And how much are you getting paid? Nothing. <laughs> We're paying you zero. Maybe we give you some donuts. We give you a gift card. <laughs> Thanks for serving and giving all these hours, Christine. We have a gift card for you. Is that why you do it? Raise your hand if you want to be a fool for Christ. And this is the third part of my message. You know why we do it? Because God says, for these really stupid people with all their crazy pride... They're looking for money and status and security and comfort and I'm somebody. They don't understand that before God, we are free to be utterly nobody. So that he, the most important somebody, made himself the most important fool of all. That's how you get God. That's how you get God. You show up at church and they tell you, this person named Jesus who doesn't save us by showing up and by being so smart. Is, does Jesus look anything like Peyton Manning to you? Does Jesus act like William Wallace? 
And all the smart and all the sophisticated people of the day, you know what they decided? This guy is such a loser, let's crucify him. But by being nailed up, he would say, now, for all of you losers in the world, I will be your God. I'll love you. Come to my cross. I'll be the loser God for all of you. Be the fools and follow me. The biggest fool of all. I'll, such a fool, I'll die to love you. And then I'll set up this stupid thing called the church and call forth all the losers of the world. And some of them volunteer to be fools so that others can be wise. They will take on, incur costs. I mean, you literally incur costs to become a member of the church. I will tithe so other people, I will make myself poor so other people can get Jesus. I will show up and volunteer all this crazy time. I will love people. They will, they will insult me. They will ignore me. They will be thankless. They will bite me. They will, ins- they will hurt me. But that's the church. Because this is what God has first done for us. Is that interesting to you? Is that compelling to you? Is that a beauty and a glory more than anything else that than Dr. Phil can hand you? <laughs> then your, your nearest, this is how you make a lot of money. Then even the nearest university, no university can give this to you. Only the church. Because only the church has God who is actually a fool could love you by grace. That's the church. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I, I want to ask you, you know, the next time you're on a, a, on a trip, and it's a Sunday, just go, go find the small, little, dumpy church in the middle of nowhere. And go sit there and look at the guy up front, and maybe he stutters, just like Moses. And if he preaches Christ... Just know God's in the room. He's not in the Sistine Chapel, but he's in the room. And that's why you came, to meet God, to have God. Let's pray. The church. Lord, in this, as we go into this time when we are more like the wild and woolly pluralistic pagan time of Paul. Would you call our church to be the church? This small band of people, we would in no way be ashamed. In fact, we would wear our weakness proudly I pray, Lord, you would call forth people who would say, Pastor, let me be a fool. I raise my hand. Pastor, you be the leader of us fools. And we would laugh. We would laugh and we would have enjoyment. Sometimes we hurt. Sometimes we're beaten down. Sometimes we're reviled. But we're not reviled by you. You are so pleased. That's your bride.
You are so pleased with these, these odd people who showed up in the church to say, I raise my hand, make me a fool like Paul so I can love and encourage and be made poor so they would become rich. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up a band of people in this church, a band of fools, <laughs> a band of leaders, unstoppable, just as Jesus is unstoppable, just as Paul was unstoppable. And you would pour forth a whole bunch of people who come to this church who would lay down their wisdom and their pride and who would gladly say, I'm a loser, I need Jesus. I need God. And we would be able to pour forth our foolishness and our heart and our love into these people. And the fools would be say, we rejoice that they are made wise in Christ. Would many, many be made wise in Christ in the midst of this fellowship, in our community groups, in our worship, Lord? Would you revive and let your church be the church. The church be the church in the Corinth of the 21st century called San Jose. Let our church be your church. Would you be pleased to come be in us and live in us? In Jesus' name.